0: Helm and
1: Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Zubar radio we're off. we're off it's another fan club it's another fan club fan club fan club fan club fan club it's another fan club that's the new um, theme yeah it's a the new theme um so um, I have uh, joined the zoom call <laughs> with one minute to spare 45 seconds really I imagine mm-hmm. um, couldn't find the link and I found it. And now I'm here. Don't worry, guys. It's going ahead. (laughs) I
2: didn't realise that's what... I I saw Natalie was panicking about something, but I didn't have my phone on to see that that's what the issue was because I could have just done that. Would have been fine. Would have been
1: fine. I I just just scrolled down my emails. Um, I do find it weird when you have a Zoom... I've got a Zoom meeting on Monday. Mm -hmm. And um, the people that have organised the Zoom meeting have uh, sent me the link to it yesterday, Tuesday. Oh, yeah, it's too early, isn't it? And you just think, do you think that I haven't got emails? <laughs> do you think that I'm... Just send it ten minutes before the fucking meeting. Yeah, have it that I'm, time not, time. Having a, I'm not having to go at the food bar lot. I'm just saying mm. that six days in advance to be invited to a Zoom meeting is too much. I'm yeah, definitely yeah. going to...
0: I'm definitely like gonna to remember anyway.
1: I'm going to forget there's a meeting. I'm definitely mm. going to. So it's just ten minutes before, and I'll go, right, I've got to be there. Brilliant. Can do it. Oh, night before. night before. Oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Six days in advance. It's just like, like fucking the amount of stuff I'm buying on Amazon for Christmas at the moment. It's just like you get an email every time you order it. Then when they say yeah, we're gonna give it to you, and then they go yeah, we're sending it, and then they go yeah, it's on its way, and then they go it's delivered, <laughs> and then the building I'm in send me another. Like that's like five <laughs> emails per purchase. It's like fucking. Well, you think that honestly. This time of year, it's my busiest time of year. Uh, I'm Santa Claus. Anyway, uh, my name's Nick. My name is Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to another Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. club. Uh, I, I, I struggled with that at first, and now, you know, 100 episodes later, I can really nail Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. It's easy now. Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. It is. It's easy, it rolls off the tongue, uh, which is lucky because that's where I put it. Uh, so, um, uh, first rule of the fan club: tell your friends. Tell hey, your friends about the fan club. Why not? Why not? Hey, tell you what, if you, we've all had a tough year, if money's a bit tight. Uh, the best Christmas gift that you can give is just maybe jot it down on a piece of paper and give it to someone and say, "Hey, join the fan club." Um, uh, that's my little uh, tip. It's like, uh, it's like Blue Peter in a way, isn't it? It's just... there's, there's probably like
2: 150 hours of content to get through. Are you joking? I don't know, would that be right? How, how many shows? We do two hours a week. The first six
1: months was one hour. So that's 60 hours. And then we did two hours for two years. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, we've got tons. We've got like over 500 hours of content. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> I mean, content's the right word, really, isn't it? It's um, filler, filler. Uh, what I would say, what I would say, it certainly got me through a lot of lockdown, um, what I would say is, somebody said the other day, I listened to the latest fan club and I listened to the first fan club, and your opinions on Star Wars haven't changed. It's almost like you're on repeat. And um, what I would say is, yeah, my opinions on Star Wars haven't changed. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that.
0: But we Most were
2: making, humans don't really change, though, do they?
1: We were making a very different point, I think. We were talking about uh, mythology last week, which did encompass Star Wars chat. But really, we weren't talking about that the first time. We were just talking about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So I think you, what you have to realise is, if someone has a certain interest, mentioning something twice over a two and a half year period. Isn't that fucking weird? So don't try and edit me. All I can suggest is, if you don't like the fucking content of the fucking fucking radio show slash podcast, start your own fucking podcast. Then you see how fucking easy it is. Like we've just said, over 500 hours of fucking content. So have like a half hour that overlaps. I mean, it's not like we mention the same thing every week. Ah, uh, have you seen... Have you seen any John Carpenter this week? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. I did watch Big Trouble in Little China again.
2: There we go. Um, <laughs> how was it, Pierre? It's just amazing. It gets better
1: every time I watch it. I love it. I think. Amy I Campbell, to...
2: one time fan club presenter, one time fan club guest, doesn't like the film. I find it baffling. hate it. Um,
1: I think that maybe she hasn't seen it that often. I also think that um, that uh, I used to watch it as an action film. Mm hmm. And I find it lacking. But if you watch it purely as a comedy, you go, it's brilliant. Also, the other thing I noticed, which is probably documented somewhere, but I sort of worked it out for myself, was that um, uh, famously, Kurt Russell does a Clint Eastwood impression in Escape from New York. Mm. So basically, rather than act, (laughs) he does a bad Clint Eastwood impression for Escape from New York and Escape from LA, right? And then when you watch Big Trouble in Little China, you realise he's just doing a bad John Wayne impression. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Mm, And it's like, well, Big Trouble in Little China, when it was first uh, invented, when it was first thought of, was originally meant to be a Western. And it was about, you know, Chinese immigrants and um, a stranger in town turning up. Like, you can see it, right? Absolutely. Big Trouble in Little China, the pork chop Express is basically, is his horse. It gets Mm -hmm. stolen. He starts off gambling. Uh, he's got um, a horse saddle over his shoulder, and he wears sort of like a duster. Um, and it's kind of like that. It was it was originally a western, and then they didn't have enough budget to do sort of like a, sort of like a period film, so they updated it. And there's still sort of like uh, a western in its DNA.
2: Yeah, yeah, then, yeah. As soon as you say it, you can picture it. Go, oh yeah, I know exactly what that would be like. Be and so. Same.
1: So to do a John Wayne impression, it's kind of like right. So he's done. <laughs> he's he's done. He's no,
2: good. As a choice though, I don't mind that at all. I mean, I know you don't mind it either. But like, it's like um, as the performances go, I quite like that thing where someone's gone. Basically, you want this, don't you? And there's other examples of that. I think Gangs in New York. Daniel Day Lewis is basically gone. Oh, uh, Robert De Niro didn't want to do it. How about I do a Robert De Niro impression for three hours, and Martin Scorsese goes, "Cheers, mate. That's what I want. <laughs> That's basically what I want." Um, there's other th- what other things are like that, where someone's just doing an impression of, oh, um, Ghost Rider, the Nicolas Cage film, where he's basically doing an oh. Elvis impression, and uh, you go, yeah, that character makes sense as like evil, can evil Elvis? It's yeah. just like it makes it more fun, and the character on the page is boring, so Nicolas Cage brings all this like, well, I'll just create a proper character then and make it this sort of caricature. Elvis, evil can evil, and then you go. Oh, it's more fun now.
1: Yeah, Well, also because it's filtered through someone else. It's not if you just think it's Kurt Russell doing a character, mm. and then when you go, oh, he's actually doing an impression of someone, mm. and he's done it for the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the character is um, like he's not like an antihero in the sense that he's an antihero because he's he's um, a shit hero. Like he doesn't even achieve hardly a single, he has one heroic moment, which is a fluke, (laughs) and everything else is sort of like, uh, he's late to the fights, he misses out on the fights altogether, he gets stuck underneath the heavy guard, he shoots rocks, and they hit him in the head, and he's unconscious for an entire battle, it's like, I I love it, and I think that, um, I think that's what I kind of like, didn't appreciate, I mean, I've seen it. I saw it once at the beginning of the year, and it's got to the point this year where I've gone. It's come come round again on my cycle of things <laughs> that I want to watch. It's a per- what I do is I watch it as a perfect double bill, which is uh, you watch Big Trouble in Little China and then you watch Tango and Cash. And Big Trouble in Little China, he's amazing in, and Big <laughs> and Tango and Cash, he's basically doing the same thing, but. Uh, it's incredibly unlikable. That film is so, it's so enjoyable, but it's so rubbish. I just love it. I but, but I like it. I don't even know if I like it. Ironically, I technically I hate it, but I just sort of like revel in all of the poor decisions. Like not one piece of you know you're watching a film that is starring the Oscar the. the Oscar-winning screenwriter Sylvester Stallone, and not one piece of dialogue lands in, for two hours. It's like it's so you write that, well. Say again. You write that one as well? No, I, no, he didn't write it. But he's on set and he's learning the lines and he's saying it. It's like *Tango and Cash* is a film that is entirely fueled on cocaine. It's kind <laughs> of like just nothing really works. Uh, they've stolen so much from so many other films, and you kind of, it's even miscast. It's just like just swap them over. Um, I think we said this before. I remember said we said I think we almost said it like two weeks ago. Yeah, maybe. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we said this. That I remember at the time feeling like. Wow. Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell in the same film. Yeah, we have so definitely... I, oh, yeah, yeah, OK. All right, never mind. Oh never mind.
1: no, this is like... Uh, well, it's almost Christmas. This is a greatest hits <laughs> round-up of... Uh, this is our lap, it's our lap of honour. Um,
2: yeah, I couldn't believe because it was like, wow, both in the same film. And I never... Kurt Russell is such a big presence of my film-watching all my life since I was a kid that I didn't think that Kurt Russell was ever, like, a B-movie star... I yeah. thought he was like, like the the idea. I thought they were like titans of cinema on the, in the same film. Like, wow! How can you get them both in the same film? That's amazing. Not thinking at all that Sylvester Stallone was a far bigger star than Kurt Russell was.
1: Yeah, but like, but but when we were young, we grew up in video shops. Mm. So, the so that is like the ultimate leveler, you know. Yeah. And then also, um, you know, Sylvester Stallone by that point, was the king of the American box office, even more than Arnold Schwarzenegger, really. Mm. Um, like 1985 was uh, Rambo 2 and then Cobra. And Cobra wasn't a big hit, which was a big surprise for everyone. But, oh, no, that was like 1986. Uh, but he was still doing Rocky films. I think Rocky Four was out as well. So, like, Sylvester was absolutely huge, by which point... Schwarzenegger had done Commando in 85, Terminator in 84, Raw Deal in 86, and then Predator in 86 or 87. And Predator was like the one that really sort of like established him as kind of like, oh, no, this guy, he was a bad guy in Terminator. Um, And it it was popular, but it was kind of like Predator was the one that really sort of like established him. And, And people forget like Twins was a genuine bona fide blockbuster. Oh, yeah. One of the, especially because it was a PG. Exactly. She so had all these kids that idolised him and finally they could see the film that he was in. So it was like a huge family film. And, you know, every, every, every two tickets that you were buying for a date turned into four to five tickets because you were taking your family. Um, yeah, fucking, because all, all the lucky people that got dragged along to Arnold Schwarzenegger Films in the 80s on a date. But do you know what I mean? It was like a Friday night event. And then Twins was just like, nah, this is, this is like this huge... Before Home Alone, before Batman, it was just massive. Yeah, was it, that's exactly. it, exactly.
2: That. Yeah, it was because all the kids watched his films on video were suddenly allowed to see a uh, Schwarzenegger film in the cinema. Just- but
1: also, also, it was kind of like, uh, I sort of discount Twins and it, all of his comedies is kind of like, yeah, that's kind of like the also runs but they actually largely contribute to his box office success. Mm. Like Kindergarten Cop, which I've seen again in lockdown, that's uh, that's great. Like, I've always hated it. And then I watched it, and you just go, no, it's brilliant. For what it is, it's done really, really well. And there's sort of like a level of violence to it where it's kind of like, oh, my God, it's kind of edgy. But, um, yeah, so I did. There's
2: Kindergarten Cop over here. Yeah, it would have been. Or maybe it was a 15. I remember seeing it in cinema. I can't remember
1: how old I think I it might have been a 15. It's, it's pretty violent, you know. The guy gets shot and bitten by a ferret. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen Kindergarten Cop 2? No, is that
2: with Dolph Lundgren?
1: Yeah. I've never
2: seen, it. Never I seen
1: am, it. I am sort of, uh, I think I'm probably going to watch it over Christmas. I don't know where to find it. I don't know where to find it. <laughs> but um, I will find it and I will watch it. And I will, I don't know. I don't know if I'll enjoy I was going to say, and I will enjoy it. But I don't know if I will. Have you ever seen Dark Angel? No, I haven't actually, no. That
2: was like I'd, meant to be his comeback, wasn't it? But it didn't really take.
1: Uh, was it a comeback? I think it was sort of like, it was like, he made it was like it was either late 80s or early 90s. Uh, it was Dolph Lundgren doing a an action horror movie. Um, and I've never seen it, but I saw, and, I, and I've never thought about it. I haven't seen a lot of Dolph Lundgren, even though we've met the man. Um, yeah, it do. it's
2: it's funny actually when you think about it because he was always a big, massive star. But I guess entirely from Rocky IV in well, your head, like what a, what a huge star. But yeah, that's all he did. I don't and think he was always oh,
1: a massive star.
2: I don't think it he was, was It was a bit. Well, he was a presence. He felt like a real, like you know, every kid knew who Dolph Lundgren was.
1: I think that he would, well, because of Rocky Four, yeah. yeah. And then Masters of the Universe. Mm. But Masters of the Universe kind of like was the one that went like, actually, he's not a star. Yeah. Punisher
2: as well, I watched as a kid. That was an 18. I guess that's just by chance, isn't it? I and I guess because that- I read comics, it was a kind of, oh, I want to see the Punisher film. It, it's not great, is it?
1: No. Like there's huge action sequences that are basically filmed in a hotel lobby uh, and it's all brightly lit. And it's, there's no, there's like loads of kind of atmosphere when he's in the sewers. But as soon as he comes out above grounds, you know, he's sort of like operating in sheer daylight. Did you ever see um, Big Trouble um, Showdown in Little Tokyo? No, no. That's him and Brandon Lee. You imagine it was, it's, I think it's something like 82 minutes long. So you imagine it was like cut right down for something. But it's, um, uh, they've got, it's, It's Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee, and then they've thrown in Tia Carrera uh, to sort of, like, make it, you know, heterosexual. But it is the most, um, like, deliberately so, it is kind of, like, one of the most uh, homoerotic action movies (laughs) ever made. It's so good. Um, Dolph Lundgren is, like, like, he is capable of turning in some pretty poor performances. But... Having said that, he is also capable of turning in some pretty great performances, and he's really good. He's terrible in Masters of the Universe, but he was learning English. Mm. He was great in Rocky IV, but he's basically a prop. But when you see stuff like Showdown in Little Tokyo, you realise that you know he he was great. And anyway, I saw these clips from um, uh, uh, Dark Angel, and it looked like so. Yeah, I think maybe I'll have a Dolph Lundgren season. Where I go out and watch Red Scorpion, like all the ones that you know I've sort of missed. What's the word? Joshua Tree. Is it called Joshua Tree? It's <laughs> like no, an action. It's an action no, movie. No, 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 no. It's kind of like he. I think he's mainly known for Rocky IV, Mass of the Universe, and then uh, being in the Jean Claude Van Damme movie Universal Soldier, yeah, where nice they one. was kind of pitted head to head. Yeah. But really, it was kind of like Jean Claude Van Damme was so big, and Dolph Lundgren was very much like. Kurt Russell to his Stallone, you know. Exactly. Very good comparison.
2: I think at the time, again, it felt like um, it was, to me, almost like a, it felt like a power play for Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like, wow, he's really made it if he can be top
1: billing against Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> yeah. And it's a <laughs> Roland Emmerich film. Yeah, yeah. It's like, his, was it his first film or his second film? I think he made one about time travel and ghosts or something, a kid's film. Oh, right, he, right. Universal Soldier, and then a couple of years later he made Stargate Independence Day and then like all of the disaster movies. But um yeah, like Roland Emmerich's first kind of like really big, big hit. Um I'm not really I don't know haven't seen loads of Jean-Claude Van Damme. My favourite Jean-Claude Van Damme film is J C V D. Never seen that either. You've not seen JCVD? Watch JCVD. It's, it's brilliant it sort of doesn't quite live up to its premise which is uh die hard in a post office right but basically it's uh jean-claude van damme in belgium uh, and he's got to go to a post office to pay his kid's alimony because he's because he's, he's playing jean-claude van damme he's playing himself he's a deadbeat dad who's like failed you know he's straight to video uh, he knows that he's kind of, like, not lived up to... He's frittered away his talents, and now he's got pay alimony in a post office, and then it gets overrun by b- robbers. And then it's Jean-Claude Van Damme having kind of an existential crisis in a post office where he does, like, monologues directly to the camera. There's this amazing kind of, like... I, I'm going to say five minutes, but I I'm imagine it's like shorter there's this imagine there's amazing five minute um action sequence at the beginning where they do everything in one shot where he basically goes around an entire he's filming a film he goes around an entire film set to this amazing music and he's just beating the shit out of everyone all in one shot um uh oh it's 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 great because he's talking in Flemish and he's a great he's great and then you realise that everything clunky about him is this uh, language barrier. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like Nowhere to Run. I liked um, Hard Target. Mm-hmm. I sort of like Time Cop. Um, so there's kind of like...
2: The big one at my school was Bloodsport, which was big because um, you kick someone's leg and their bone comes out. That was the big, uh no. oh, oh, we've got to see that.
1: I've not seen seen that. I've not seen uh, Legionnaire. I've not seen... Is Lionheart Bloodsport or is that another film? I don't know. I've not seen Cyborg. Cyborg famously uh, was uh, the sequel to Masters of the Universe. So Canon Films were making a sequel to Masters of the Universe. Basically what happened was Canon Films had the rights to... um, Warner Brothers made all of the Superman films up to the third one and then Cannon bought bought the rights to Superman 4, right? Uh, Christopher Reeve didn't want to do it so they said, hey, what if you wrote it? What if you wrote the storyline to it? So Christopher Reeve said, right, I'm really interested in uh, uh, the Cold War and uh, nuclear armament and I think maybe we could do something that's like anti-nuclear weapons. So Christopher Reeve wrote this sort of like pacifist Superman film which is, like, you know, worthy. Um, and rather than put all of their money into Superman and or all of their money into Masters of the Universe, Canon Films basically said, right, we also have the rights to Spider-Man. So if we really, really, uh, if we make two mid-budget huge successes, then we can make James Cameron Spider-Man. I think it was James Cameron Spider-Man because mm. James Cameron was attached to it for about 10 years. Yeah. yeah. And so they made, uh, so they cut all the budget for master of the universe and they cut all the budget for Superman four and they made them both on the cheap thinking that they're just going to be huge hits and then we'll make Spider-Man and then we'll like put our foot in the door. And like, at that time, like Cobra with, um, with Stallone, they didn't quite have the budget to do Cobra. So they did a co-production with Warner brothers and then, you know, Cobra became a much bigger kind of budget movie than Canon were kind of used to. Um, But again, like, Cobra was like a two-hour film that got chopped down to an hour and a half, and it was meant to be a lot more kind of, like, edgy. But I don't understand how it could have been edgy, because he eats pizza with a pair of scissors, you know? It's like like he cuts the crust off with some scissors and just eats the pizza tips, and it's meant to be, like, really macho. And you go, this is absolutely pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like your teeth don't work. Um, But, yeah, so so, uh, Masters of the Universe and uh, Superman 4 were both massive flops. And then it basically meant that they... uh, And they were too cheap. Canon were too cheap to pay for the rights or renew the rights to Masters of the Universe. But because they were expecting it to be a big hit, they'd already built most of the set and the costumes. And so rather than get rid of it all they just rewrote it as Cyborg and made a Jean-Claude Van Damme film, which was a really big hit for Jean-Claude Van Damme, which um, ended up kind of like cementing him as like a VHS superstar. And then through that, he kind of like started making stuff like Double Impact, Universal Soldier. And then through that, Sam Raimi somehow got involved with him. And Sam Raimi produced Hard Target with John Woo and Time Cop, like out of nowhere, And then I
2: guess
1: guess Renaissance Pictures, which is Sam Raimi, they produced the Time Cop TV series, which ended up having Bruce Campbell in that episode. Um, But I, I don't know the story behind Sam Raimi in the early 90s. He's done All the Evil Deads. He's done Darkman. He's waiting to do a simple plan. Did he do anything in between those films? No. No. Did he not do anything between Darkman and Simple Plan? Hang on. Hmm. This is just two people thinking... Oh! Army of Darkness. Oh, fuck. Yeah, right. So he did... <laughs> Yeah, but I don't... Fuck me. Jesus. Yeah, so he did uh, Darkman, Army of Darkness. But then he... Can... Natalie, can you get his... Um, can you get his CV up for us, please? Um, Sam Raimi. Um... Yeah, and so it, in between, like, I guess, around the same time he was doing Army of Darkness, no, just before Army of Darkness, he did um, Hard Target. Well, actually, Army of Darkness was 92, so Hard Target was 91, I think. Oh, let's have a look. Right, okay. So uh, so he did Evil Dead, Crime Wave, Evil Dead 2. Crime Wave was a massive flop but it should have starred Bruce Campbell. Crime Wave has got, like, three really great jokes in it, which are timeless jokes, which are worth sitting through the film for, but it's an incredibly irritating film to watch. Uh, but it's got, like, three or maybe four really amazing moments in it that are, that are worth it. It would have two. Um, it, Easy Wheels. Actually, oh, so you wrote that by looking at it, but didn't direct it. Dark he
2: uh, directed.
1: Uh, the Nuthouse, A Dark Man... The Nuthouse, uh, didn't direct. Army of Darkness, yes, directed. Hudsucker Proxy, he wrote. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quick and the Dead, dead. of course, of course, of course. Uh, That was, like, his last, like, proper genre Sam Raimi-type film. And then he did Simple Plan where he was kind of doing a a slightly Sam Raimi-Cohen Brothers, which Mm. is funny, because at the time everyone was like, Sam Raimi's basically doing Fargo. But in actual fact, when you watch uh, um, Raising Arizona, it's the Cohen brothers that are basically doing Evil Dead Mm. as a romantic comedy, which is bonkers. But, um, and uh, I say obviously, Joel Cohen was the sound editor on Evil Dead. So they all grew up together. And then they did, you know, we've said this before, Crime Wave is set in Hudsucker Prison. And then later on, Sam Raimi writes the Hudsucker Proxy, for the Coen brothers, or with the Coen brothers, which again has Bruce Campbell in it. So there was this period in between, like, the early 90s when he was making Darkman, Army of Darkness, Quick and the Dead, that he produced these two huge Jean-Claude Van Damme movies and basically was responsible for bringing John Woo over to America for his, like, eight-year grace period before people sent him back.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a shame. I guess because in Hong Kong he was making kind of films over here, all your kind of um, film fans were kind of going nuts over, and I guess in in Hollywood, and they bring him over and they put him on material that's probably not terribly suited to him, really.
1: Um, I don't know if it wasn't suited to him, but I think that... um, I think that he has a bag of tricks and by the time he came over to hollywood he was basically pastiching himself mm. so you have the doves and the slow motion and the double-ended gunplay and oh, all of the all of the action scenes are like by the time you get to mission impossible 2 it's ridiculous mission impossible 2 steals jokes from dark man because it's all about sort of like wearing masks and stuff. So there's like a there's a sequence in Darkman in Mission Impossible 2 that is a direct lift from Darkman. Um, it's kind of like um, by the time he did Mission Impossible 2, it was kind of like oh it, yeah, I really love Broken Arrow. I really like I really love Hard Target. Um, uh, what else did he do? Face Off. Uh, I sort of like tapped out. Focus. What was that one? Wind Talkers? No. I, I, have, I have seen it, but no. Um, yeah, that was it. It was kind of like in the 90s you had, um, well, you, you had The Rock, Con Air, Broken Arrow, and then the culmination of all of that hard work from everyone, Face Off. And Face Off, I think, really suffers today because of all of the... Um, Blatant stunt work, where you can just see two guys that aren't John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, like clear as day, in the middle of most shots, just uh, water skiing and having a fight on a boat. And you go, you haven't even attempted to hide their faces. These are just stunt guys. I would say even at the time, though, I I was in the um,
2: like I, I like you say, it felt like it was the culmination of all those movies. But I, at the time, I was really disappointed in Face Off, and I was so excited for it. But when it came out i was like a bit like it's fine
1: i just thought it was funny that they stole one of their big plot devices from an episode of red dwarf four you know <laughs> was is it red dwarf four or red dwarf three when they're in the prison and they've got those cyber boots and they're magnetized to the floor and you kind of like go yeah like red dwarf right <laughs> it's crazy um yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. Anyway, I, I liked Face Off at the time. I thought it was really cool. But John Travolta was the coolest. It might be hard for anyone to really comprehend if you're younger than 25. But there was a period in the 90s where John Travolta was the absolute coolest guy on the entire planet for maybe the third time in his career. He was um, the
2: biggest movie star and was getting paid $20 million a movie.
1: Yeah. It was, he was so cool though. Well, he did Pulp Fiction. All of a sudden he was cool. Um because before Pulp Fiction he was making Look Who's Talking Now <laughs> which is a talking dog movie. <laughs> um it was, you know, it's kind of um, yeah, his career yeah. I I've got like um well I don't know, there's all the scientology stuff, but uh he was really good in American crime story, I really wanna see Moose. Is it called Moose? Is that the fan one? Yeah, uh, Fanatic. Uh, is it called Fanatic? Where he plays a character called Moose. Yeah. Uh, directed by Ted Durst from Limp
2: Biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, the Fred Durst directs it, doesn't he? And I think, doesn't it start with someone saying, Oh, I'm just listening to this Limp Biscuit album. It's really cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we've got. Uh, how do we wrap this chat up? What were we talking about?
2: <laughs> how did we, what, what was our point? <laughs> Uh Dolph underground is rubbish, yeah.
1: Dragon Cash is rubbish, but if you've not seen it, it's also amazing. Like, they get... I'm going to say... I've said it in almost every episode of Fan Club, but I cannot comprehend this. It was made one year after Die Hard. They steal a line from Die Hard and they get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> in Die Hard, Bruce Willis says, uh, where did you learn... Uh, um, who taught you how to drive? Stevie Wonder? <laughs> and in Tangra Cash, Kurt Russell goes, Where did you learn to drive? Stevie Wonder? It's amazing. It's in the film. It's in the film. <laughs> he gets it wrong. And he says it. And they were all so off their faces. I don't know if Kurt Russell was, but I get the impression <laughs> was so off his face on Coke on that film. His fucking... they were. Oh, my God. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, I love All I'm um uh it's my childhood and i'll cry if i want to i love them and um yeah uh and i guess last week simon west directed all of them in one film and it was fucking hard getting him to talk about it but he did in the end um so uh we're gonna play a song now and then we'll talk some more in however long it is you will Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on UBAR Radio. And we're back! Um, so, um, so what have you been a fan of? Uh, oh, we've just, uh, we just, news just in, Kurt Russell replaced Patrick Swayze in Tango and Cash. Uh, T- uh, Patrick Swayze went off to do Roadhouse, which was, um, which is basically, it's like, um, if you like dirty dancing, but you thought there wasn't enough fighting in it? Then that's the movie for you. It's basically got the same soundtrack, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's got like Patrick Swayze kicking the that's shit. Dirty
2: Dancing him. for boys.
1: Yeah, it's Roadhouse. I love Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing is like one of my all-time favorite films. Um, and Roadhouse, in terms of Patrick Swayze films. Is kind of like maybe a close second. I think uh, Roadhouse is, a, is is great, but it's not as good as Dirty Dancing. But it, it's got a lot of the same. Like there was a real fifties fetishism in the eighties, and the, uh, Roadhouse is just all fifties music and or fifties sixties. Oh, it's great. Anyway, uh, he went off to do that, and Kurt Russell came in. But you can tell because Kurt Russell basically steals Patrick Swayze's hair. Yes, yeah, you can see that.
2: You can see that. Um, I thought what I'd do is, because we've been locked down, I saw an opportunity in uh, in Sainsbury's the other day. I saw a new drink available, and I thought we could do what we used to do. So I bought it, and it's a new drink, and it's uh, the limited edition cinnamon Coca-Cola for Christmas.
1: Right. So I went into my local shop, and I couldn't find cinnamon Coca-Cola because I didn't okay. pay. But what I did find was I found an American Apple Fanta. Okay. And I also found this other soft drink called Genuine Fago, which is an American can size, slightly bigger. Oh, yeah. It's uh, 355 rather than 330 um, millilitres. And this flavour is called Rock and Rye. Delicious Rock and Rye fago. Um, okay. So... I guess what? You'll open yours, I'll open mine, and then we'll review them for you live on air. (laughs) Not live, (laughs) pre-recorded.
2: Okay, so I guess this is for Christmas, the cinnamon smell. Oh, yeah, I think I've been reminded that I don't really like cinnamon. Right. So it smells like, you know, dentine uh, chewing gum. Right. There he is, he's drinking it. I can see him. Over Zoom. Do you know what? If anything, the, the cinnamon is so low in the... I think they've done it, realize it's disgusting, and then really toned down the cinnamon, so you can barely taste it.
1: <clears throat> I mean, you say that, but, I mean, their Diet Coke with cherry doesn't taste like Diet Cherry Coke. Like, Cherry Coke is one of the nicest drinks on the planet, and their Diet Coke with cherry is one of the most disgusting things I've ever drank. It's fine, actually. Yeah? Disappointing. Okay. Going to give this apple tango a swig. Mm-hmm. He's
2: drinking it. He's going for it. Oh, he's had a, a few gulps. Um,
1: yeah. For those of you out there that, that feel like apple ties doesn't really uh, punch you in the mouth like it should. <laughs> uh, what can I say? Um, it's strong, appley taste. Apple Fanta. Oh, my God. That is a delicious drink. Uh, oh, I, very sweet if I'm not drinking at the moment I, I, do you know what I think back and uh, most years I don't drink during December until Christmas because that means that your first drink on Christmas morning you know you <laughs> invite the rest of the day off <laughs> but um, I reckon uh, Apple Fanta would taste absolutely amazing with gin with ice uh, lovely yeah great oh. there you go
2: that's our that's our segment. What did you? What have you, have
1: you seen anything this
2: week? I tell you, a, a big franchise that I watched for the first time, although I've only seen the first two movies. I saw Jumanji, 1995.
1: Never that's seen it. Right. Joe Johnston. And Joe Johnston. Johnston.
2: Johnston. 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 Johnson. 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 Joe Johnston. And I like Joe Johnston Johnston's films. So I, I wanted to see Jumanji, and I... Not I, that much. No, but it was. On,
1: I think it was on Netflix I watched it. <laughs> it's taken you 26 years to see it.
2: Yeah, it's taken me 26 years to see it. And I was, do you know what, I was never really interested. Then I kind of just had a moment of, maybe a moment of weakness where I went, yeah, go on, do, do a Jumanji. And it felt kind of, uh, you know, the sort of, the kind of, thing I was sort of in the mood for a bit kind of mindless and and I'd say the whole film is a bit like it I thought it was a really good screenplay and I thought it all fit together well but I didn't care and I thought oh it's just because I'm older and it's it's like a kid's film. But then by the end it really charmed me and almost like and when I say by the end I mean literally the last five minutes of the film I found really charming and it made the whole film better. And at the end of it it sort of ends with this thing where you go Oh, I really like that. And I don't think I was enjoying watching it, but the last sort of five or ten minutes really, really sort of saved it for me.
1: I remember when the trailers came out, because it was, was it 94, 95? 95. So I remember when the trailers came out, it was a couple of years after Jurassic Park, and then this was the new big special effect thing. Mm-hmm. And the special effects looked absolutely incredible on in the trailers, and it's one of those things where they've aged really badly, Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it's a, I, I like the film in terms of, I'm not a massive Robin Williams fan. Mm-hmm. And um, I find that a lot of his films, um, they veer between uh, watching a man improvise uh, out of context of the script. And then when the script kicks in, they're overly sentimental. And I just find they veer so far. I think Jumanji walks that line better than most of them. Agreed. Plus, it's got David Alan Greer in, who nice. is brilliant. Uh-huh. And it's got Bonnie Hunting, yes. who is also uh, sort of like, yeah, she's basically, um, in, she's great. She was like, a, she, she's a comedian. She's a writer. She's directed stuff. She's had several TV shows. I know this because um, uh, I have had quite a heavy week in terms of stuff that I've been forced to watch against my will. Um, um, My my girlfriend suffers from horrific periods and sometimes she just doesn't want to watch a Martin Scorsese film. (laughs) So she we ended up watching Father of the Bride. I love Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. But I love Steve Martin up to a point and then his films. I think maybe... I do like Father of the Bride.
2: I was going to say, I would say that's almost on uh, the cusp for me. I wouldn't say it's beyond beyond the pale by any means.
1: I like it, but then I also feel like... Well, I'll tell you what I've seen this week. Mm -hmm. I've seen Father of the Bride... Father of the Bride Part Two, okay. Cheaper by the dozen. Yeah. Is it? Cheaper by the dozen two.
2: Cheaper by the dozen. I remember seeing the trailer for that, and that has a joke in it where Steve Martin's wife says, "Oh, what's it like having twelve kids?" And she said, oh, it's fine." After the fourth one, they just start walking out. And You go. That's a that's a strong joke for a for a PG. Um, yeah,
1: and it doesn't. It feels sort of like that's Bonnie Hunt. Mm. So Bonnie Hunt is the is uh, uh, it's just that he so he Steve Martin at that time I don't uh, he was a dedicated comedian. I don't think he he had he didn't have kids, but he got kind of like this. He got into this groove of like basically after parenthood, of playing kind of like the comedy dad. I think he's so good in parenthood. And then uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, I watched last night. So I had to. It was a palate cleanser. I'd sort of forgotten what I liked about him. <laughs> um, but, so Father of the Bride is great. Mm-hmm. Father of the Bride 2 is weird, where basically they've gone... I, remember,
2: I think I've seen it. I can't remember anything about it.
1: They've gone, everyone likes Martin uh, Short from Father of the Bride. So let's make him, basically, in the second half of the film, the lead. So Martin Short is now (laughs) the main character in Father of the Bride Part 2.
2: So he's neither the father nor the bride. He's a Uh, wedding arranger.
1: And it's about, like, the daughter becoming pregnant and then Diane Keaton becomes pregnant. And then it's kind of like... um, uh, But they all keep referring to themselves as the father of the bride and the mother of the bride... And it's kind of like, why? Well, I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone. After they're married. Years and years after their kids get married, keep referring to themselves as the father of the bride, <laughs> other than to just make it relevant to the title of the film. Um, it's Father of the Bride t- is it, fucking insane. Like, It's a remake as well, isn't it? The second one is also a remake. Father's Little Dividend. Yeah. So the, Spencer Tracy was in... Father of the Bride, and then they made a sequel to that called Father's Little Dividend. And it's kind of like a remake of that. It's weird because the first one is kind of like got one foot in reality. The second one has like these surreal moments where um, uh, everything is amped up to 11, right? So everything that was kind of like quite funny and sweet about the first film is just ratcheted up like um, Brian McKenzie's parents... uh, he, in the first one, he was a bit emotional. In this one, he's basically getting off with a dog because he's uh, so <laughs> he's so um, emotional about leaving it behind when he's going on holiday, and everyone's like looking at him like he's the most disgusting piece of shit on the planet. And he's got his tongue in a dog's in a dog's mouth, and you're kind of like going, "Yeah, it's disgusting." What yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure there were three dogs in the first film. There's only two dogs in the second film, but they're kind of like there's no reference to one of them being put down or anything so I guess they're just imagining you're not meant to see them back to back Uh, there's what there's a moment in it where Diane Keaton and like so this was a big deal having Steve Martin and Diane Keaton in a film together mm -hmm. you're Annie Hall and the jerk and they're playing the parents of you know 15 years later 12 years later after their their big first smashes they're now kind of like the parents of you're you're growing old with them you know Mm -hmm um And there's a bit when they're kissing in the second film just before they have sex, and Steve Martin impregnates Diane Keaton. And there's some foreboding lightning that happens, like it's a horror film. And it's kind of like, okay, right, okay. So, right, okay. There's a bit when they're looking at their house and how beautiful their house is, and then a rainbow shines over it. And it's kind of like, okay. So, it's not. So, we're having like moments of s- surrealism, right? It's like. Okay, and then Eugene Levy shows up playing a completely different character to what he played in the first film, which is basically a highly offensive Arabic portrayal uh, of a a dirty foreigner who's going to (laughs) buy their... um, their childhood house, and then basically knock it down and build flats, right, and it's kind of like oh, 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 oh. and then Martin Short comes along, and he's like the main part in the, in the second half of the film it's like it's it's fucking bonkers right and then um and then he did like Cheaper by the dozen, mm-hmm. which um is kind of like a meritless movie. Um, but it's what what's sort of weird about it is the fact that it's based on a true story. So there's a lot of kind of like plot and setup in the first 10 minutes. So it feels slightly jarring because they're trying to sort of like go, well, this is the actual story and then we're going to do like the family sitcom thing that we've got planned. So Cheek by the Dozen 2, it actually works out a little bit better because it just hits the ground running. And then Eugene Levy turns up in it as his rival dad. Oh, it's just, it's just like... There are funny moments in all of the films and Bonnie Hunt is really good. Um, so there's funny moments in, in both of the films, but um, they're so lightweight that it's just kind of... A, and so when you go back and watch Planes, Trains and Automobiles, it's like, yeah, it's funny, but Steve Martin and John uh, John Candy, but Steve Martin is putting in a genuine performance. Like he is... He's not just the straight man because he is very funny in it, but... He has some real dramatic stuff to deal with, and he's sort of like he he's he's bringing kind of like his a game to it, and when you watch something like Chief by the Dozen," which was made like fifteen years later, it's like Steve Martin going, "Yeah, I know how to be a dad on 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 camera. I'll do it like yeah but just, it just it that did
2: seem like a shame. it felt a bit like these are his films where he's just buying his art collection with it's just and I don't know and it was always that whenever he had a hand in the writing they were always good movies it always just felt like they were always good movies and he just felt he was almost turning up in the kind of early 2000s for things and just being you know like I can do comedy and just being you know you know this sort of comedy actor in these films that felt very either lightweight or in the case of something like bringing down the house absolutely appalling absolutely yeah. like Extraordinarily appalling films, mm. and the Pink Panthers as, as well. Of course, yeah, Bilko's.
1: But well, Belko was yeah misguided. But then once he's done Belko, why would you go and do Pink Panther? Why would you? If you you know anyway. And then you yeah, know, I think Bowfinger was his last great film. Mm.
2: Um, obviously, it's it's sort of frustrating a bit because he's obviously still so funny, and you see him like on Twitter, and he you know he's naturally super funny all the time
1: and it almost makes you think well do, do it that. do that <laughs> when he when he hosts the oscars and stuff like that he's great yeah which he hasn't done in 20 years maybe but like when he <laughs> did it he was brilliant um i love it i love him but yeah it's um it's it's sort of troubling but like so i watched a youtube video this week uh can't remember the channel but if you google "Plane, trains and automobiles original cut it will come up the original cut of "Plane, trains and automobiles was three out- three and a half hours long yeah and then they cut it down to two hours or maybe two and a half hours and then the final version is like 90 minutes so they cut it and they cut it and they cut it they've cut out
2: a whole other movie's worth of
1: yeah but there is an original cut of... And none of the, none of the um, deleted scenes have ever been... I think there's maybe one deleted scene on the plane. And then apart from that, um, none of it's been made available. So there's a three and a half hour cut of planes, trains and automobiles out there that I think sounds fascinating. And, you know, the, what the YouTube video is saying, it's actually, if you watch the film you can see because they make references to scenes that aren't in it. So he's like saying, well, you went in my wallet to buy a pizza. And there's, that scene's not in it. But you kind of like imagine that they've spent enough time with each other that that's something that's happened. And there's a scene near the end where John Candy turns up with a black eye. And he said, and he sort of says something like, he gets out of the front of like a like a huge truck. And he goes, oh, the guy's a bit funny about riding up front with him and he's got a black eye. So you can kind of assume that the guy hit him in the face. But in actual fact it's a completely it's a scene that's been completely taken out. And Michael McKean is like almost at the end of the film he's almost top billing and he plays a cop in one scene. And Michael McKean has said, you know, that they filmed like a lot more. There was like all these plot details that didn't come out. So um I think we should I think we should Start a petition to get the original cut of uh, "Release the Planes, Trains and Automobiles." Release the use cut. Yeah, that's what the guy says on the YouTube clip. He says we should we should all sign a petition to do it. And I I'd love to see that because John Candy, when you, I mean, as great as he was, he didn't make he only made like a handful of classics. Oh. You know, and they were all in quick succession of each other. If you look at something like uh, "Summer," uh, is it "Summer," "Summer Resort." Is that what it's called? I don't know. I don't know what you mean. He made, he made a summer film where he takes his family away, which isn't very good. And then he kind of made, um, he's in the background of a lot of films. You know, he's in Vacation. He's uh, the kind of co-star of Brewster's Millions. Summer Rental, it's called. He's in Brewster's Millions, which wasn't a great film. He's, you know, that. Plane Trains and Automobiles was the one that really sort of, like, cemented him. He was in Splash. He was great in Splash. Um, uh, but Plains, Trains and Automobiles really cemented him with John Hughes, and then they just wanted to work together. Great Outdoors, not a great film. Um, John Hughes, when he was making Plains, Trains and Automobiles, um, basically he was down to direct The Great Outdoors. But, um, which was John Candy and Dan Aykroyd. But then he'd also got playing trains, and automobiles on on the go, and so he swapped because he wanted to work with Steve Martin. Which, if you're Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> 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 yikes! Um, all right, we've got to do fan mail now. Oh wow! Well, yeah, of course. That hour has gone by fastly, quickly. quickly. Well, for us. <laughs> who gives Who gives a fuck what it sounds like? Um, this is what we do anyway. Um, this is what was pretty much what we do anyway. Have you seen anything of any any note this week? Not that Not that needs talking about. I think that we've got an opportunity with our guest today to actually do what the show should be. Yes, I do. So maybe we should do that anyway. Brian's here, so let's do some fan mail.
0: I love... Hey, boys, by the way, it's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to Christmas. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you on the Zoom, Nuts! Right, here we go. Nathaniel, Nate. Now, right, okay, off we go. Let me put on the reading glasses, and off we go with the fan. eh? I love... Fancro. Dear Nathaniel, Metcalf.
2: Also to Brian Johnson and Christopher Lee,
0: Oh, that's very nice of you to acknowledge me. I hope this finds you all well. I've been a listener. Me, for me and Chris. I hope this finds you well, well. I've been a listener from the beginning. I it was about time I wrote. I'm currently re-watching really As Force is the Evil Dead on Netflix. It's a fantastic series. I wondered if either of you had seen Happy, also on Netflix. Oh, sorry. I wonder if you had seen Happy? Also on Netflix. Fucking hell, man. And if so, what's your thoughts on it are? I'm a fan. It's the thing I always suggest if anyone asks for recommendations. Oh, I fan me voice in all the years you have been making fan club, I don't remember you ever discussing the work of Kevin Smith in any depth. Do you rate him as a filmmaker? Any favourites? He'd make a great guest one day. Perhaps kind regards Andy Collins.
1: Interesting. That's a big one. Um...
2: Uh, yeah, I'd say I've not watched the series, I, I, it came out as a comic book first, and I remember reading the first issue of the comic and I didn't really take to it, so I'd never watched the, the series. But it's, you're not the first person who's mentioned it, so maybe I'll give it a go.
1: I watched the first episode of the series a couple of years ago and I didn't really like it, so I didn't uh, persist. But, you know, it has been recommended a lot. And I think that you can't really judge something by the first episode. Or the first series, you know. Uh, sometimes stuff that gets cancelled after the first series should have really got a second series so that um, they could have uh, seen it develop. Uh. But, um... <laughs> um, Kevin Smith, I watched the James and Bob reboot this week. Uh, doing that,
2: I, I went for a, a stage where I, I don't know that I like his movies or have ever really liked his movies as much as a lot of people do of my age and my generation. But what I kind of increasingly he, he started popping up on things, and I, I find him quite a likable personality more and more when I hear him chatting about stuff he likes.
1: I yeah, I like him. I have watched three of his Batman commentaries on the line where he basically just chats about chats his way through Tim Burton's Batman Tim Burton's, Burton's Batman I think I've watched Batman Forever Batman and Robin and then I watched Batman I haven't watched Batman Returns but um, they're funny commentaries that he does um, and I really like Clerks but when he didn't kind of like um, evolve as a filmmaker I think Cloak's is an amazing film, the fact that he got it made. I really like the way it looks. I really like how sort of like, um, uh, not sloppy, but like homemade it is. I I, I like, I like, it feels very much like El Mariachi in that sort of respect, that it's a filmmaker that's making a film for the first time because he he wants to, you know? And then when he didn't really evolve as a filmmaker, I kind of like, there's a bit, I think I stuck with him for a long time. I didn't like the, Anyway, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot is, um, it's basically, it's there for the people that love him. Uh, and that's all I'll say, really. Because this is fan club.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you that? How are you doing? I'm a bit of a Grinch and I feel I need to get into the Christmas spirit. Do you have any Christmas film suggestions for me? Cheers, Holly.
2: Ah, with a name like Holly, I would imagine you would have been a fan of Christmas. Oh. Um, okay. All right. Um, well, I would say instantly something like It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I would say the film I was recommending... <laughs> 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 oh, I,
1: it, it, oh, God. And then it just felt like... It felt mean. Um, it's all right, that. Um
2: <laughs> Um, I would say... What else? Like, there's tons of
0: good Christmas movies.
1: I mean, Plain Shows and Ortonville is a Thanksgiving film, but it's basically, watch it at Christmas. It's brilliant. Hmm.
0: Um,
1: uh, what would I watch at Christmas? Uh, do you know what? I'm really looking forward to watching uh, just a bunch of... Um, just a bunch of horror films and Martin Scorsese films. Well, uh, do you
2: know what? Weirdly, last Boxing Day, when I was at my and <laughs> dad's house, I watched The Irishman for three hours <laughs> when I should have been spending time with them. And um and now weirdly, when it's coming round again at Christmas, I think I've associated with Christmas so hard in my mind from last year that I almost feel like I might watch The Irishman again.
1: Yeah, I think um I, I did the same thing. Well I didn't do the same thing. I, I watched it just at the beginning of New Year, but I really loved it. Um and that's what I think of Christmas. It's kind of like Christmas is a time of year where all the way through the rest of the year, I feel really guilty if I watch a film and I've got stuff to do. And Christmas is the time of year where you can literally just watch the stuff that you actually watch. I might watch uh, Obsession with uh, the Brian De Palma film, because I just loved that. Uh, And I think I watched that last Christmas. Uh, But I don't really... I think Christmas films are so sort of generally shit that it's kind of like why do that to yourself? Well,
2: I okay, uh, it's a good opportunity to watch whatever you want to
1: watch. I, I will be watching National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation on Christmas Day in the morning uh, because uh, because it's tradition. Um, right, really quickly... Hey, guys! Hey guys
0: what's all my daughters And Netflix? just a documentary about Mar- Maradona. Sometimes Netflix is weird time, It's really creepy. What do you think? Thanks.
1: Yeah, sometimes the timing is creepy. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. You're bang right there. And, hello, how's
0: it going? Home, As well, I have some cool information that might interest you. You are very rank. You are very rank, Malta. Hmm. Your podcast, Nick Helm, and Nathaniel Metcalf's Fat Club has good performance in some rankings. Position 33 in the category comedy Malta, position 159 in the category comedy Ireland, position 170 in the category comedy Estonia. Cool. Happy podcasting, Carlos. Thanks, Carlos. Carlos. Oh, sorry, I... Um, 33 in the category comedy. Oh, oh, Malta. Uh, Position 159 in the category comedy. Ireland.
1: Position 170 in the category comedy.
0: Estonia.
1: Cool. Right. Okay. Brilliant. We're going to play a song and then we'll get our guest on. <laughs>
0: And Nathaniel Metcalf's
1: fan club on Bar Radio. And we're back. We're back. We're back live in the studio. We're not in the studio uh, or, or live. We're pre-recording on a Wednesday, and I'm in my uh, living room, and Nat is in his washroom, and we're joined in the studio now by comedian, writer. Uh, oh, I'm not going <laughs> to fucking bother. I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, so we're joined now by uh, Matthew Crosby. Um, Hello. How are who... you doing, guys? Very well. Um, I'm, I'm very well, thank you for asking. Um, it's my, my pleasure. How are you, Nat? I'm very well,
2: I'm very well, yeah. how are you, Matthew?
3: I'm very well, thank you very much. So I where think are we're you
2: all... joining us? Is that, is that a living room? You've got a sofa?
3: This is, uh, this is where, yeah, it's the living room. I keep the sofa here. Uh, it tends to be the best place for it. It's pointing at the telly. It's, I, I've just moved into a new house, so um, I don't have curtains, but I do have a sofa. But uh, everything takes a long time when you move into a new house, and that's, that's the situation I'm in at the moment. So, like, there's nothing on the wall behind me. It's looking pretty bare. It's looking pretty sparse. I mean, I was, I've been put to shame by the absolute uh, storage wars uh, display that uh, Nick Helms got going on behind him.
1: Yes. Um, uh, there, because the, 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 there comes a point in your life where your possessions own you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I kind of regret a lot of my purchases, but that,
3: that's fine. That happens when you move in house as well, where I don't, I'm, I'm terrible. Like I, I should get rid of stuff and I can't. And one, uh, one night my wife went out and basically sort of put a load of boxes in front of me and said, right. Every time we've moved, we've brought these boxes. They're unopened. There's nothing in them. You need get rid of them. And I managed to whittle seven boxes down to one box. And even the stuff I kept just crap. It's just, like, like the thing is, it's all, like... I, I, I found, like, rem- like notes to, like, call comedy clubs when I first started, like, when I first started doing stand-up. I was like, oh, I can't throw that away. That's the first time I called the Chuckle Club. And they said no. And then the Chuckle Club closed, and I never, <laughs> and I never played the Chuckle Club. I've got to keep that. I don't know why I want to keep these mementos of things like that didn't it. even fucking happen.
2: I'm exactly the same. I'm too nostalgic for things. When I see it, like, in a closed book, it'd be a lot easier if I just... Through a box in a skip with yes. attitude, like I don't need any of this stuff. Never thought about it, but when you open it and you see what's in it, it's like, oh, it's this. I love this, but it's never anything you need.
1: Yeah, I've got fly. Yeah, I feel like it's my responsibility to um, document the entire comedy scene for uh, my th- through my life. So it's kind of like I'll open a box and I'll find flyers for stuff that I saw in like 1997. Yeah, and I'll be and I, I, yeah. Uh, but the thing is that the, the what you gain from that is uh, you have like fond memories of stuff that you probably wouldn't have thought about without the visual aid. So-
3: what what it, what it means is once every five years I take a photograph of something and text it to the person who's on that flyer. That's basically it. I'm sort of doing them a little favour, you know. Maybe remember- you
1: just- Took a photo of all of your stuff, and then you could get rid of it. That's not a bad
3: idea, actually. Just if I just live an entirely digitized life, Yeah. it's a good idea. You know, it is a good idea. I, I'm, I'm always like I I, I always think about um, uh, is it is it Michael Landy is that the name of the guy who uh, who shredded his all his possessions as he did it as a work as, as an artwork. He's the guy who's married to Jillian Waring. But I think about that a lot because I think. Basically, you don't really, you know. I've got, I, I have my my uh, my partner, and I have my uh, my child, and I have my family. Uh, I don't really, I don't really need all this stuff. I'm hanging on to. Maybe I should just shred it all. Yeah. just shred my entire life.
1: Not your family, though. No, no, no. I mean,
3: th- those are the things no, I keep. Not, he okay, didn't shred on, his uh, sorry, as yeah. part of the artwork. He didn't shred his family. <laughs> he shredded all his possessions.
1: I can't work out whether I missed a bit or yeah, fine, okay. Just
3: to, yeah. Well, when I was saying, I've got these things. These are the things that are important. I shouldn't have made that clearer. I've got my family; they're important. All my possessions are the things I want to. Sh- Imagine if I'd started the the the, the, the interview by going, um, "Yeah, so I've got this child now. She's been around for about sixteen months. I just want to stick her in a shredder."
1: Yeah, but if you took a photo of her,
3: exactly. To... I've got a photo. Fu- rid- <laughs> but but st- yeah, exactly. Photograph the kid. Pop him in a wood chipper. Do a Fargo <laughs> on him.
1: Fuck. Sure. All right. Okay. I imagine it's
2: like you've got this sort of archive and stuff, almost as if uh, we're going to get a a call from one of the big universities saying, (laughs) listen, we we need to have, we've got like Stanley Kubrick's boxes. If you you haven't got any of your shit about it, it's like, yeah, I'll I'll do you a favour. I'll offload all my shit
3: onto you. Well oh, you sa- you say that now. You say that but there isn't there is a comedy archive at my old university the University of Kent. Oh, yeah. And genuinely, uh, uh Dr Oliver Double, he's a, he he was he was there when I was at university so I I I wasn't on any of his courses but I was such a saddo. I went to his lectures. His name because... is Oliver Double. Yeah, Oliver Double. Yeah. Like a pun. It is like a pun but it's his real name. Sure. His his real name is Oliver Double. Um he calls himself Ollie. To sort of soften the pun slightly, sure. uh, I mean, unless you're a skateboarder, I guess. Is there, is there such a thing as an Ollie double in, a, in skateboarding? <laughs> Presumably there is, but um, but it, but but anyway, he, he calls himself a Doctor Ollie Double, um, and he was uh, he was there when I was at university. He's still there, he's head of drama, but he also runs uh, uh, an archive. I think it started when he got all of Linda Smith's um, um, archive. So he, again, you know. A real comedy talent, but every now and then I'm chucking out old props from Pappy shows, and I just say to him, "Do you want this?" And that's kind of there's a big, there's an enormous big Pappy sign from our show in 2009 uh, that's in my parents' shed, and um, when I get the chance, I'm putting it in the car and driving it to Canterbury because he wants that as well. What he's going to do with it? So
2: have if you been... think he does want it, or do you reckon it's one of those things, if you ring up, he can't say, <laughs> "Do you want this?" <laughs> that you know or what?
3: what? There, there, there is that because my dad calls me and says, "Do you want it?" And the answer is no. But rather than saying to my dad, "No, chuck it away," I go, "Well, I don't want it, but maybe Ollie will want it." I bet you he's got someone just down the line that he's passing it on to. It's like swap shop all the way. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't think anybody actually wants it. And eventually, eventually, it's going to end up on your doorstep because you're just too polite to say no to the person down the chain. Well,
2: that did happen. I, I did a, I did a preview with you in Paul Pero,
3: Yes, brilliant. Those are two fantastic, fantastic days for Ian Rigby. It
2: was. uh, They were great, great, uh, great gigs. But you left behind a stick (laughs) that was, uh, that was about eight (laughs) feet long. And you, I got a text saying, oh, we've lost, we've left our stick behind. Is there any way you can get it back to us? (laughs) And I'm sure. And I didn't think anything of it until like, I was trying to take up an eight foot long pole on a train. Yeah. And it is like, it is like a sort of, it's like the film The Plank. You yeah, can't actually yeah. go anywhere. And it's this sort of massively long thing, which is like tearing the, the the ceiling of the train. And it's kind of this awful thing and just embarrassing thing that you're smashing into people with people looking at you going, why is this bloke got a massive stick? <laughs> <laughs> it's only when you, when I handed it back to you that I thought, I mean, could you not get another stick?
3: Yeah, do I, I, you know what? I, I, what will have happened there is, in a in a blind panic, we'll have gone, that's our special stick, that's the stick we use for the show, and not thought about, you know, oh, I'm sure Nat will be able to bring it home. Like, yeah, it, it, everything's replaceable. Everything, you know, nothing we've, no prop we've ever made or bought or whatever has been so brilliantly constructed that yeah. we couldn't knock it, knock it together in uh, 35 especially seconds.
0: A especially especially a, stick. a stick.
3: Especially a stick, which I, I imagine, if it was as long as you're saying... And I remember the, the stick, we use it for, for Tom to play a scarecrow.
2: Scarecrow.
3: That's too long. It doesn't want to be that long. It doesn't. wants to be about, well, about an arm span. What's that, about, about two metres? Oh,
1: yeah. Your arm yeah. span is the same as your height. No, oh, is it? it?
3: That's, is that why the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the picture of the guy with the arms sticking out in the circle, is that?
1: Jesus. Is that,
3: well, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Yeah, he, he wasn't crucified in a circle, was he?
1: Well, I don't um, know. It must have been a bit of a crowd.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, the 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 Leonardo da Vinci picture of a man oh, standing. Yeah. What's you that called? I wanted to say, and it's what is it? What is it called? Nat, do you know it? What's it called? No,
2: it's called something like. Well, in fact, I'm saying something like as if I know. I called? don't know what the next thing I'm going to say. It's like, is it? I want to Some, say something. The something man, isn't it? The something, yeah. the something. I want. I want I
1: wanted to say that, Yeah. Man. It's called the. Like, yeah. Bicentennial Man, or something like it's that. The,
3: yeah, yeah, it's Lawnmower Pat. Man. Oh,
1: it's Patch Adams, that's
3: the one. It's Pat, it's, it's, that's Pat, yeah, like Patch Adams. They used to bring that round the hospitals and cheer up the kids. Um, but yeah, that's it. He's sticking his arms out, but it's also, it all fits into the...
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't just make it up. Your, your no, 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 no. Your that... your height. It's actually an eight-foot pole. Tom Perry's quite tall, isn't he? Yeah, so but he's, eight not eight, he's not
3: eight foot, though, is he? He's 6'2". Yeah, but, uh,
1: but if he's a scarecrow, a foot either side, that's not that much.
3: Um, Natalie sent us the the title of it. It's The Retruvian Man. Retruvian Man,
1: that's right. But the the thing is, what you could have done...
3: It's right, Natalie.
1: Rather than stick a pole, you could have just had a a foot of dowel rod out of each of his sleeves, and he could have just put his arms out. I'm
3: not going to lie to you. He's a strong actor. He could mime that pole. (laughs) I reckon (laughs) He's a good performer. You put your arms out as a scarecrow, people are going to believe you. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> he yeah. had a. he was wearing a straw hat, he had his arms out. I think we, we get it.
1: The stick well, that's part the, the stick similar. wasn't the challenge for the audience to picture <laughs> that. No,
2: no. I guess part of the thing with Pappy's though is the idea that sticking something in your coat or whatever it was, it looks uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's partly what the fun is, right?
3: Yeah. Laughing
2: at someone it, looked,
3: it looks, it looks un-, un yeah, it looks uncomfortable. It probably takes him a little bit too long to get to the stage, so he's running onto the stage with it still sort of still shimming it down. All of that kind of shambolic stuff. That was what people enjoyed, yeah. What
1: was, yeah. What was the show called in 2009? Was that Funergy?
3: The 2009 show was uh, Pappy's uh, Presents 200 Sketches in an Hour. No, I
1: didn't
3: see that. No. Okay. It was good. It was a good, good show. Funergy was 2008. Uh, Do you see that one? Last Show Ever. Last Show Ever was 2012. That was the one that had the Scarecrow in. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
3: and, uh, and yeah, I think the first two were just called Pappy's Fun Club. I mean, basically what we did is we made it it very confusing for people to... Because Pappy's Fun Club already, quite a confusing name. Pappy's quite a confusing name. We were always adding extra stuff, you know, Pappy's Fun Club, Funergy. Just call your show Pappy's Fun Club. That's all you need. Um, But anyway, yeah. I wonder what happened to that stick. Probably ended up under my house and then got thrown away.
1: (laughs) In some sort of museum, I imagine, knowing you.
3: Yep, probably in, in, in the archives.
1: Have you ever been invited back to do a speech at your university?
3: We got invited back to do a Q&A, which is worse. Because at least a speech, you can kind of control, you can control the narrative. You can say, here are all the things I've done, goodbye. Whereas, <laughs> you know, a Q&A where you come out, and this was, we were performing at the university that night. We were doing the Gulbenkian Theatre that night. And so the Q&A was before any of these students had seen us perform. So like, they didn't know... They had no questions for us. I mean, like, Ollie got all the people on his drama comedy course to come along and, 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 and chat to us. But, like, the, you know, when, the, when most of it is them going, who are you? It's not, it's not <laughs> Who are you is a really bad first question for a Q&A. <laughs> if, that
2: was, if that was an audience with Kenneth Williams, it would be awkward, <laughs> wouldn't it? Have <laughs> um, you got any questions?
1: Who, who are you? Who are you? I did, a, I did a Q&A with Oliver Refson, which isn't the pun. No. Uh, who wrote and directed Uncle. And that was awkward because no one gives a shit about actors. So I'm sat next to the writer <laughs> and director. Everyone wants to know, how do you write it? How did you direct it? How did you do all this? And I'm just sat with him. Yeah. And so often you feel like you've got a chip in just because you're there. But fuck me.
3: Yeah, no one needs to know how you remembered all the words. How do you know which way to face? Well, he tells me he's the director.
1: They'd have, they'd have asked me that, though. That would have been uh, that would have been quite quite a lot of. Um, it would have been very exposing,
2: yeah. <laughs> and before that, you would turn up anyway to these Oliver double lectures on comedy because you oh, were yes. a comedy fan, right? Before before you got into it, you were kind of was it what was it everything you wanted to do?
3: I think, yeah, I think basically. Once I saw Vick Big Night Out, I sort of thought, yeah, I think that would be, that would be the dream. I, mean, I think the thing I liked about Vick Big Night Out is that I think up to that point, I'd wanted to be a pop star. And he was kind of both. He'd come out at the start, like he was obviously sort of a parody of, 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 a, of a light entertainment performer, but he would come out at the start and sing a song by Jesus Jones for no reason and uh, not not in a particularly funny way either, just because he thought it was quite cool, you know, wearing a, a like a Savile Row suit and, with kick flares and stuff. He'd sing that and they'd do a load of absolute nonsense for half an hour and then he'd sing a song at the end. I thought, he's basically, he's kind of cracked the dream job, really. And that's kind of not a million miles away from what Pappy's ended up being, which was us coming out, singing a song, doing a load of silly stuff, singing a song at the end and leaving. It was kind of... So, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, really. I think from from the age of about ten onwards, ten or eleven, that was it. That was the dream.
2: And was Pappy's did that start at university? Or was that was there at one point what was the was the kind of origin of that and what was the origin of you being a solo stand-up? Or was it all happening at the same time?
3: Sort of. We we used to we used to do like uh very long, big uh, kind of gigs at the old coffee house in in beak street and there yeah. was when we first started it was we just hire that room for 25 quid and hope we'd make the money back on the on the door and it, it tended to be people we know like we knew most people in the audience even though we always stuck it in time out but no like we there was never a stranger in the audience and we we do one a month and we do maybe like two and a half hours and it must have been a nightmare for people to watch but uh, they were they were very kind to us if they, they kept sh- you know kept showing up like literally like I would have been 23 24 and my mum and dad were coming along to watch it which I think is now I think about it, it mad what must they have been thinking you know they must have been so disappointed
2: it seems very nice to me it it's very, very sweet
3: depressing. yeah it's very sweet but it's only one step away from performing a show in the living room at Christmas <laughs> Only this time, you've, like it's the the only change really is I'm charging them a fiver. So what's that
2: you know? like the beginning of it? You were just like, let's put these shows on.
3: Let's put long shows on. Let's call it Pappy's Fun Club. Let's do. Uh, let's. Do, we all did stand up, and there was like seven or eight of us when we first started. And slowly but surely, we whittled it down to four, and then then a little bit more abruptly, whittled it down to three.
2: Right. Uh, did you? So,
3: but you were solo stand-ups in so it wasn't yeah, like... Yeah, we were all doing like, stand-ups. We we're, were all, all doing... a show. No, we were all doing stand-ups that would... It would flow into sketches. I, um, I'd just seen Mr. Show um, for for the first time, and so every sketch... No sketch had an ending, basically. You know, so every sketch ran into the next sketch, which would run into us ending up on stage doing sort of sort of stand-up, kind of solo bits and bobs, and uh, and that was kind of... And it was, like, always based around a theme and always based around the idea of this mysterious benefactor. Basically, very complicated. We were really into doing very complicated, like, unnecessarily complicated stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I like that, but I know, I know what you mean. I'm a fan of overly complicated things, that, but I know, I understand that that is not the right way to do it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it was only it was only maybe the... Yeah, it was our last show we did last show ever that we realized we don't need to have five or six moments in the show where the show's in trouble because Pappy said something like Pappy was this kind of mysterious benefactor who no one ever saw, but was always sending us like he he sort of forced us to do these shows up in Edinburgh. And we, we sort of didn't really know how to do the show and it would always be falling apart. And you go, you don't need to say all of that. Just do a show and have it fall apart because you're incompetent and the audiences will get it. But it took us, so when did we do our first show? Two thousand, yeah. So it took us eight years to realise that of just constantly, <laughs> <laughs> constantly doing this thing that only made us laugh <laughs> and not really and confused more people than it entertained. And then eventually went, oh yeah, yeah, we don't need that bit. We'll drop but that the bit. Cof-
2: the old coffee house years mm-hmm. or year. What when would
3: that have been? <laughs> two thousand four, two thousand five. Yeah, maybe like two thousand four, two thousand six. So yeah, we we probably did about sort of. Maybe fifteen or sixteen shows over the course of two years.
2: And is that what was the material you were writing there? Was that condensed into your first hour show?
3: Yeah. So so really our our um uh our first show was the kind of the best forty-five of about three hundred and seventeen hours of comedy. <laughs> 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 yeah. We'd um we'd we'd done like we'd done loads of stuff. And and in fact, actually, uh I remember after our was it our second show, uh, we got taken out for dinner in an exciting way that y- used to happen in Edinburgh, where like someone from the BBC would see you and take you out for a, a dinner that the BBC would pay for. And uh, I remember Brendan saying, like, and this is in all seriousness, uh, like saying, well, we've we've probably got about 14 hours of material, and uh, I mean, obviously, we didn't, We we could, you know, we had we'd been on stage for 14 hours doing different things but that's not the same as having 14 hours worth of material. We, 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 barely, we, we barely had an hour, but yeah, we <laughs> believed it. Um,
2: and when you, so you were doing stand-up at the same time, so around 2004?
3: Yeah. Yeah, started doing stand-up on the circuit. That sort of went okay. And then if people said, do you want to come back and do another gig? I'd say, yes, kind of bring my three mates and we'll do that. And that seemed okay. to just, yeah, that seemed to move a bit faster than... The stand-up kind of ever did.
2: Oh, that's interesting. So you were kind of—that was what you wanted to do more than doing solo stand-up.
3: I think I just preferred being. Yeah, I mean, I love I love doing stuff on my own, but I like being with. I just like performing with other people.
1: I mean, we were yeah. talking about this a couple of weeks ago, weren't we? Mm. Um, and I suppose you've got to be a bit more disciplined when you're working with other people as well.
3: Yeah, it forces you to do it because you're all, you know. Yeah, I, I, you've got to write as well. I think one of the th- things I did, I really didn't do enough of when I was first starting out stand up was write, just actually physically go, right, I'm going to sit down and work out all the funny things about this thing I want to talk about. What's the funniest turn of phrase to use for this? What are the angles I haven't explored? I would normally have half an idea, write two things down on a bit of paper and go up on stage and hope there was a fair wind behind me and uh, I could improvise, you know, these amazing routines. And it almost never worked. <laughs> Occasionally, you'd come up with one or two funny things that would 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 stick, but most of it was just complete and total waffle. But if you if you've got a that's if you've my got
1: a, process. That is, is it? Yeah,
3: but like you put, but like stuff like songs and stuff. You sit down and you write those songs.
1: I make them up on the spot. That's what I do. That's, uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> that's my magic.
3: You just make the whole... Well, yeah. it, you know, for some people it works. For that's other people.
1: Just turn around to the band. and say, watch me for the changes, and then fuck it out. This is in G. <laughs> Two hours later, standing O's, <laughs> <lows>, mate. Standing O's. <laughs> That's nah. No, but sometimes songs work like that. Sometimes songs work like I've got an idea for a song, and then you sort of, like, make it up. Not in front of an audience, but... Yeah, I, I agree with you. I wish that I'd had sort of, like, more discipline earlier on. The thing is, I got rewarded for standing up on stage and making stuff up off the top of my head based on three notes quite yeah. early on. And when you get rewarded for stuff early on, you, why would you bother going back and working?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, well, the thing is, I wasn't even getting particularly rewarded. I just enjoyed it so much I didn't give a fuck. And that was it's a bad attitude to have. Like, I kind of wish now... Uh, like if I could kind of do a, a cut and shut of my personalities, I wish I had my current work ethic with the fearlessness I felt at yeah. 24. Yeah. You know, when I could go on stage and go, it doesn't matter if this doesn't go great. Like now I just feel, I mean, partly because I, I don't gig as often as, as as I used to, even before the the, the lockdown. Um, but now I just go on stage. It's, I'm so nervous that it's going to go badly and uh i just didn't i don't remember at least i don't remember feeling that at all,
1: which is weird though, right, because you've put the work in
3: exactly, so I should be by rights i'm better now than I was when i was twenty four I think for...
2: when I started, I would be going up and I think because it was also terrifying for me when I started, it would almost make no difference if I would go up and go, and also the idea of thinking oh i'm gigging for someone who's seen." Not, not the audience. There would be like someone who was on who had seen me before. So I'd go right. Well, I better write a whole new yeah uh, because because it will look ridiculous if I'm doing the same thing. And this one comedian who I've gigged with once before will have seen any of it. So you'd almost be like, because it was such a terrifying thing to do at the start. What you're actually doing was more risky. I wasn't anything. Yeah, totally. It was like I my attitude was almost. I'm going to do this thing which is terrifying tonight. So let's make it even more terrifying and write a whole new five minutes.
3: But, but then I think there's a safety net to going. A bra- here's a brand new thing because you go well. Of course, it wasn't going to work. Hmm. It was brand new. Whereas you know, I I, I,
1: I don't know why it's sort of it.
3: it, it it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard dying. With, it's it's like sort of hard dying with old material.
1: I wouldn't necessarily say, of course, it wasn't going to work, but I think that. Because it's new, because you've just thought of it, then uh, any reaction is a positive.
3: Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean,
1: it's not that. Oh, it's okay that I died on my ass because I was trying something new. It was. It's all. Oh my god, I got five laughs out of twenty minutes. That's amazing. I just made it up.
0: Yeah.
2: I Uh, wish I had that bravery now. I find it like I find whenever I have to try and write something new now. I just can't get into the zone of having that bravery of just going up with absolutely nothing. I have like backup plans and like, well, if I do this, I'm going to go into an yeah. old bit of material. Um, and
1: but I, also, I, I... My, also my writing voice is entirely different from my speaking voice. So um, I I spent eight years writing theatre before I did stand up. Yeah. And what you what I realised from that was that you would write a. And the theatre was really kind of more like sketches or it was sort of like monologues and stand-up. But because it was written and learned, if something didn't work, you'd stick with it for a month in Edinburgh because that's what you'd written and rehearsed. Yeah. Whereas as a stand-up, you can write something and it not work and you go, fucking hell, I'm going to change that. But when you, as soon as it's sort of like written down in theatre, then it's kind of like it's not, it's not stand-up anymore. I don't know. Um, I just Although think that you're freer to sort of like move around and swap stuff.
3: Although actually, one thing we we certainly did a lot of writing as pappies, but what we didn't do was rewriting. Yeah. So once we got a show up to once we got a show up to Edinburgh, and it was and again that only started happening l- in later shows when we got a show up to Edinburgh. There'd be bits where we're like, you know, there was oh my god, there was one bit where we were going, it, the, the, the joke was we were going through the mailbag and it was all these kind of basically like hate mail that people had written to us. But obviously obviously as well, all written to Pappy, who was then relaying them, again, you know, that extra layer that doesn't need to be there, all written to Pappy who was relaying the message to us. And every, every letter ended with, by the way, that meat you sold me, are you sure it was lamb, right? Every letter ended with the same phrase. And never got a laugh made us laugh so much when we were rehearsing it, never got a laugh. But we never thought, oh, we should probably, you know, we, we've done this now five times. <laughs> uh, we should probably just stop doing that bit or change, or, you know, e- even if you're not going to write a better line, I mean, oh, a better line, wasn't even, it's not even a joke, it's even a, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Um, even if you're not going to write something else... At least take that line out, so you're not having a thing. We just clearly because we would we would giggle as we as we read it each time. Sometimes we wouldn't be able to get through the sketch. We were finding the idea of that meat you sold me. Are you sure it was lamb? So funny that we wouldn't be able to get through it, and the audience just sitting there going, "What are we missing out on that you find so funny?" And the truth is, even now, I couldn't tell you. Got no idea <laughs> what we thought was that. I don't you know. Was he selling? Like, was it awful or was it, was it, was he selling human meat or was it sort of, you know, roadkill or it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. But we kept it in, you know, every single, we must have done the show 25 times. I reckon the audience must have been thinking, ah, this will be coming back later.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly.
2: Like oh, I get it. Okay, just wait till the end, and there's going to be a big, we'll get around to it ending or something.
1: <laughs> it's huge. Someone's <laughs> going to
3: come and dress as a sheep. Yeah,
1: it's weird, you know, like, the, but that happens in, in stand up as well, not it? Where kind of like you'll be doing Edinburgh, and uh, there'll be a line that maybe doesn't work in your show, and then you get to the end, the rest of the show's great. And You get to the end, you get like a round of applause, and you leave, and you're like, mm. oh, great. To have to think about that till the next day. And then you'll be on stage and then you'll go, it's that line that's absolutely fucking terrible that's coming up. It's about 10 minutes away. I know I've got to say it because I haven't rewritten really it. And then you'll get to the end of the show, you'll get a round of applause. you go, oh, thank God, I don't have to think about that until tomorrow. And it'll happen for like maybe two, maybe two weeks in a row until you go, I'm going to cut it, I'm going to cut that line today. Yeah. You'll say to the technician as you're setting up the set. you go, you know what, I'm going to cut that line today, Aaron. And then you'll go, good, good. It's got yeah. nothing,
3: mate. Because I have to deal with it as more than you do. You know, <laughs> I have to hear you. I have to hear you say it and get nothing.
2: <laughs> it's true, though. That'll be the only time you think about it. It'll yeah. be like, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. yeah, this is shit I have, that I've got I to, have to fix. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, I remember. I remember going into the um, the Brooks Bar in. Uh, this would have been again, maybe two thousand and eight, uh, and running into Ellis James. And uh, he had his headphones in, and he was listening back to the show he'd just done and making notes. And I thought, "Are you mad? What? (laughs) Why are you doing that? Just done it. Go and have a drink. Enjoy yourself." Like, I remember thinking that was absolutely insane. And then, of course, you know. He went on to have a really good run in Edinburgh because he spent a lot of time working on his on his actual comedy and and I we we had we just had this this mentality that like I think that's also goes comes down to the fearlessness that like we we thought we were right and I think that that that's part of what's gone away uh, and rightly so is the idea that I know what comedy is and the audiences are thickos. In fact, the opposite is true. Sure.
1: Well, I had to. But I had a whole song in um, my 2013 show that never worked, but I had a video for it. So I was like... (laughs) like Every day I'd be like, oh, no, the song was coming up. (laughs) And then you'd have to do a song where I was wearing a leotard and I was prancing around the fucking stage, selling the fuck out of it. And literally the whole audience, it was really loud. The music was loud, so you couldn't hear whether they were laughing or not. But you could see their fucking stone-cold faces for five and a half minutes as you prance around doing this song. And it was like every day you couldn't change it, you know? And then when I did a London run, I just swapped something that I did on one of the other songs with that song. And then you go, oh, I I did it on a treadmill instead, which I did with another song but the song that I did on the treadmill was song, It was strong enough to not do it on a treadmill. And the one <laughs> right. that I did do on a treadmill <laughs> didn't work. So I just sort of like, it wasn't a treadmill, it was a cross trainer. But, um, but, yeah, it was just like swapping it. You go, right, I don't have to rewrite it. I'll just distract them while I'm doing it.
3: Just more props, isn't it? Just throw yeah. more props at it. What you really needed, Nick, was an eight-foot-long stick. That's what that needed.
1: <laughs> well, that was the thing. I left my cross trainer behind at a venue, and I said, Nat, can you... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I think> <laughs> <going forward. laughs> and that was uh, half, halfway back to London before he realised, can I get a cross trainer from London? It was um, <laughs> pretty- But he actually travelled back
3: on the cross trainer, didn't he? He just started powering it and it shot off down the motorway.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I put it on some train tracks and I, I started trying to make my way
3: back. I, is, I, I, you know, I remember I, running into you after that. You were thin as a stick. You looked
1: amazing. Well, up top, but his legs... <laughs> 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 um, we're going to do something that we've never done before. Uh, okay. I think we're going to ask you what you're a fan of. <laughs> What? Are yeah. you telling me that
3: our conversation has run so dry you have to go into the emergency part of things no, I sent no. to the producer before the show?
1: We don't, I don't think this is the emergency part. This is what the fucking show is meant to
3: be. <laughs> I know, I know. It is, it is the fan club, isn't it?
1: We've never done it. Have you never done it
3: before? Surely you well,
2: we, 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 we sort of do occasionally do it, and then the show ended up becoming... We just ended up starting chatting to people, and then it gets the end We don't of, need oh, to we explain
1: gotta, We don't need to explain this on air. no, no. 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 Uh, but right, it says here that you're a fan of Caddyshack.
3: Love Caddyshack, yeah.
1: Why? What, what about Caddyshack do you like about? What, you, what is
3: it? Well, I think it's the fact that it seems like I mean, it it seems quite cobbled together from a load of disparate parts, and it kind of is, really. It um, is. Um, it's um, it, like all of the, all of the bits don't seem to really, and also that they'll do anything for a laugh. Like there's so many bits that are just. For no for no reason at all, there's a bit where Judge Swales has to um, has to turn like swing round in his chair to talk to a character, he swings around his chair, you hear a knocking sound, he goes cross-eyed, like he's clearly hit himself in the balls or something, right? And then the scene carries on. And I think that is, that is a, a commitment to stupidity that I really, really enjoy, right? You don't see any, like... And also, the, the fact that, like, I, I like that things when things are like a human cartoon, like, no-one in real life goes cross-eyed when they get hit in the balls, apart from Rick Mail in Bottom... Or, you know, someone in Show. and I, I like those moments when you go, well, Of course, that's yeah. funny. I remember, remember not wishing to sort of bring it back to, to, to me again, but when, when, when um, the guys from Cowards, the sketch team Cowards, very cool sketch team um, Tim Key and Tom Basden and, and Stefan and Lloyd, um, and uh, I remember Stefan, they, they came to all pappies one year, and Stefan came up to me afterwards. And we were a bit nervous because they do—they did comedy in a very stripped-down way. They made a—they were like no funny voices. We always just talk in our own voices. No costumes. It's like a complete antithesis to what we do. And um, I remember Stefan coming up to me afterwards and going, "I just—I don't see people doing comedy that way." Like there's a—there was a bit where you know I had to—I had to run on uh, as I, I was the world's smallest ever woman, but I'd. Something some radioactive gunk had flown on me and I became a normal sized person. Uh, but of course I was wearing, I was still wearing a little skirt. So I had my ass hanging out. And he was like, I like the fact you just, you think, Oh, I can get a really big laugh just by showing these people my ass. And I was like, of course, why would you not get your ass out on stage to get a big laugh? And he's like, Oh, we just don't sort of think of comedy in those terms of like, Oh, maybe we could end a sketch by someone getting their ass out. We just don't think like that. And I think that's the kind of comedy I like where, it's you know it's it's dumb and it's dopey and but it, it just it just really makes me laugh.
2: Yeah, no, you're right, and I guess but the idea of something being cobbled together like that could make you think you've done it wrong, but I guess you're right. It is it is just throwing everything at it. But and just... that
1: was that 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 film was kind of like it was about the kids that worked at the at the golf club. Yes, and then. They got Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Rodney Dangerfield all on board, and then it became about them. Yeah, I, think, I don't love that film, but I do love bits from it. But I think what I don't love about it is the fact that you're basically having to go through this tedious plot of these guys, of the caddies. Yes, I, 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 I Rodney Dangerfield is is on. You just go, this guy's amazing.
3: I I, I get that. Yeah, there's some, <sighs> but yeah, but yeah, it's it's not um. The, the the actual plot of it isn't isn't great doesn't hold up but i like the fact that there's i, I think if it was all nonsense it would, be, it would be it's almost like yeah it's almost like people have just decided to talk over a, 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 a sort of uh, a 6 out of 10 movie they you know it could have just been like a teen sex- co- sex comedy except they've got a bunch of old dudes to come in and talk over the top of it and make it a million times better and I think that's what I like about it. It feels like the film's been it's like um it's like hell's a popping or something it feels like a film has been ambushed yeah, you right. know and I think that's... Hijacked.
2: It's, it's, it's actually hijacked by a better film
3: exactly yeah it's hijacked by by funny people to come in and you, you know um just i mean and i think loads of it i think loads of it was improvised.
1: But that is actually what happened. It did get hijacked by a group of other people,
3: and that's. Uh, but that's who what was,
1: that's. Who were all incredibly competitive with each other.
3: Oh, I, I can believe it. And also, from uh, I think all doing a ton of drugs as well. Yeah, it was. It was. A, they were all like, and it, it kind of. It, it kind of smacks of that a little bit. It smacks of like. There's no. <laughs> there's, there's almost no. There's no filter on it. Basically, they haven't decided to go right, maybe we should cut this bit out. They've just done a load more coke and gone, yeah, we'll leave this bit in.
1: Have you seen, uh, is it a pointless and futile...
3: Mm. Yeah, the David Wayne movie with Martin Mull. Yeah, Mole. yeah. What's it, called? yeah. What's it called? Is it a stupid and futile gesture? Is it called that?
1: It's something like that. Yeah. That's, that is one of those films where you think, oh, I might give that a miss. And then when you watch it, you realise it's it's pretty good.
3: Yeah, I really enjoy it. Well, I like David Wayne a lot. I think he's... Um, He's a really interesting guy. He made Wet Hot American Summer. if you have ever seen oh, yeah. that? Yeah. Which is uh, again another one of those movies where it's like, what dumb stuff can we do? Yeah. You no, again, that's a, it's a, it's 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 a kind of parody of a camp uh, of a summer camp movie, but oh. it is a summer camp movie that's kind of been hijacked by some really weird weird Does that
2: stuff. Go against what you were saying before about you know you, you were talking about the right thing is to give the audience what they want, which is correct, but there is something. Uh, idiosyncratic, right? That you have to bring to it yourself.
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think you know. If if that if 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 the, the, the former were the case, then the biggest comedians in the world would be the best comedians in the world, hmm. and that's not always the always the case. Hi, but yeah.
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm just I'm I'm very close to Kevin Hart, so I don't want to slag him off on the pod. That's all right. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I, th- I, yeah, I think, but I, I think there's, I think it's not, I don't think you could make Caddyshack, yeah, you know, like, I think it's, 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 a, it's a happy accident.
0: Yeah. I don't yeah. think you could set Whoa. out to. D-
3: have you seen Caddyshack too I have. And what a disappointment. Because it's ba- it is basically, like, let's just do the same movie again, but we've got Jackie Mason instead of Roddy Dangerfield.
1: And Dan, Who Dan a- else a- Dan
3: Aykroyd a- instead. Of, oh! Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. But it could... You know, like, Caddyshack 1 could so easily have been Caddyshack 2. Hmm.
1: Hmm. But that's, I think that, um, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, but, like, I think you get that with comedy sequels, where I think Anchorman 2 is basically, it's um, its kind of like, you, it's a film that's made around everyone's schedules. Yes, uh, yeah. They all, they all turned out, oh, well, I, I saw uh, Father of the Bride 2 the other week, uh, this week. Yeah. And the fact that they get all of the main cast back is kind of like, including the kids and the parents of the of the of the son. It's kind of like the fact that they get. It's kind of like really rare that they all turned up for 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 the, the, the filming of that film. Whereas when you watch um, like later series of Arrested Development and stuff, when they're oh kind it's of mad, all,
3: isn't it? And they can't get B- everyone together. They can't yeah, get everyone
1: in the same room.
3: And it's it's really really hard to watch. I mean, that's the same, the yeah. Anchorman Two is the same thing of like let's do a big fight scene, but clearly they've managed to get every single person for thirty five minutes to stand in front of a like you say like a green screen. Yeah, it's um yeah. Uh, it's kind of it's how how does how does Father of the Bride Two stand up?
1: I mean, it's they've gone. The, the I think maybe one of the biggest disasters for comedy sequels. And also, it comes back to like right when you're writing another show for Edinburgh as well, it's knowing what works, and then kind of like relying on that. So yeah. Martin Short is maybe in two scenes in the first Father of the Bride, and then he dominates for the last forty-five minutes of the second film. Right. Goes everyone, everyone loves Frank. He goes we like Frank in maybe tiny, tiny doses, where you go away still liking everyone else in the film. And it's kind of like with uh, Anchorman. It's kind of like, well, everyone liked Brick, so that we'll give him yeah. second go. He's got a romantic subplot. He's like Brick, oh, my... a three dimensional character. I he's forgot... coming in and out. But like, I've
3: forgotten what... about that. Yeah, his when he's got he's going out with Christian Wig, isn't he in Anchorman Two? Yeah. Oh man!
1: Everyone liked the fights. So we'll do a really big fight with huge celebrities. But like you say, everyone's on green screen because they weren't all available. Okay, I think
2: um, this is the way a lot of these American comedy movies have always been. They're
1: kind of often
2: quite thrown together. And often, whether it's good or not, just seems to be whatever alchemy happens to be in the room or not. And sometimes it's just like, well, that doesn't work. But there's no often no discernible thing that's better or worse about it.
3: I think as well, Caddyshack at the time was a massive flop. I think it's since it's it's since taken on a kind of cult status.
1: Well, it's one, but, of, it's one of those series of films that they made, didn't they? They made Animal House, which was yeah. Animal House in a because it's Animal House. Yeah, and then they made. Caddyshack, which was Animal House on a golf course. And then they made Stripes, which was yeah. Animal House in the army. Yeah. So they kind of made, like, uh, you know, National Va- National Lampoon's Vacation, which is Animal House, only in a family. You know, it's kind of... Oh, oh, and then you had, like, Porkies and stuff like that. They kind of, like, went the way of the slasher films where there was one big hit and then everyone started making, kind of, meatballs. That's Animal House on a summer camp, you
0: know? Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's 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 all this all the same thing, but I think. Uh, I mean, I, I, weirdly, Animal Animal House probably. Well, no, 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 probably Animal House is a better movie than Caddyshack, but it doesn't. And I love it, uh, but it doesn't quite get me in the same way. There's something about Caddyshack that just feels like I can't believe they've got away. Everything, like even the, how crap the gopher looks. Yeah. You know, like the gopher being like so clearly like a sort of toy robotic puppet type thing. It's just it looks I mean, it would be so much better if you couldn't see it. And I don't know why they didn't didn't do that. Or like Rodney Dangerfield dancing to uh, to Journey. Yeah. As if like to show how cool he is. It's just like there's so many bits that actually I don't know if I'm actually laughing with them in that instance. (laughs) But it makes me laugh so much. It gets me in a way. Every 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 bit of it makes me laugh.
1: Um, And what I would say, for a film that I don't particularly like loads, um, I do spend a lot of time thinking about Caddyshack. Yeah. And um, i like more than films that I love. Like, maybe I I saw Planes, Trains and Automobiles, but I don't quote it. But with Caddyshack... it's,
3: it's It's very, very quotable.
1: I just always think about that scene with the hat. And He goes, "That's a terrible hat! What a disgusting hat! That's the ugliest hat ever." Hey, looks good on you. Looks good on you, though.
0: But when you get that, <laughs> you get a free bowl of soup. Whoa. And he does,
3: he does a really, a really good kind of like, whoa, to the, like, he's doing, oh, he basically. Really? He, he does it to the camera as well. Yeah. And he's oh yeah, actually not thinking about that as well. His um, his Japanese friend, that that scene doesn't hold up too well, but uh, <laughs> but you know like. It was, it was, it was, it was very much of its time. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's full of really, it's full of really dumb jokes. And I like that. And again, it's, but it's, that's Rodney Dangerfield being Rodney Dangerfield. Like some of the most, uh, like, I don't know if you ever watched the old appearances of, of Rodney on uh, Carson, which was basically yeah. just just Johnny Carson saying, so how's your week been? And he just does a bunch of jokes about, you know, these, all these things that have been happening to him and how he doesn't get any respect. And I, I, I love it. I just think it's and that's kind of what they've done here is they go, Okay, go into the golf shop, talk about some of the (laughs) talk about some of the stuff, you know. At one point
1: those Johnny Carson appearances, he would do ten minutes of stand up or five minutes of stand up. Yeah. And then he would sit down on the sofa and then he would literally just do another five minutes of stand up where he was just being fed kind of like subjects.
3: Absolutely. With 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 Johnny just slapping the desk and falling off his chair. It was great. I mean he's And again, he was like another like I I, my experience of Roddy Dangerfield. I knew Back to School, which is I remember being liking a lot as a kid. But I think it's because it was a bit rude. But I don't think that's a film that necessarily holds up. But then I've I've since like I've since found out. He was like he, he went quite sort of mad in his old age. He was a, again a big cokehead. Ran his club Rodney's, and he used to he would never get dressed. He just wouldn't wouldn't ever really put clothes on. He wore a dressing gown, but nothing else really. And so he would he would MC his gig, sort of basically naked with his balls hanging out. Um, uh, so he'd be, be MCing the gig, you know, be doing all his all his stuff, but in like a, a silk. Robe, and then he would go off backstage and do a load of cocaine and then come back on, like, again, with his robe undone and his balls hanging out on them. sitting was like, just like, imagine, if you'd be, imagine if you'd been a big Caddyshack fan and you, you saw, <laughs> oh, Dangerfield has opened up down the road. We should, go and, we should go and see Rodney Dangerfield doing comedy. I bet he's really funny. Or you'd seen him on Carson in the 70s. And then you went and saw him in, like, 1994, and he was there, coked out of his mind with his nutsack out. It would just blow your mind. I think I'd love it. I <laughs> they gone, yeah, and there's no ifs or buts about it. I'd enjoy it. <laughs>
1: um, but there's also, uh, Robin Williams does an impression of him in Aladdin. And, yeah. And uh, they're playing chess, and he goes, I can't believe it, I'm losing to a rug. <laughs> and then, <laughs> his eyes go all spirally, <laughs> and he looks exactly like Rodney Fenton. <laughs> yeah, fucking yeah. hell, it's a Rodney Fenton impre- impression in like a kid's film. It's kind of, it's great. Um, we've, got, we've got five minutes left.
3: I was going to ask you a question. You've got a lot of you're, you're quite good with uh, with with trivia, aren't you, uh, uh, Nat? You, you know this. I mean, actually, you, you both you both are. Do you know if this is true that um, the Aladdin script was ineligible for a best screenplay because it was of the amount of
1: improvisation? To... Yeah, is that yeah?
3: I I, I I thought that might be the case. Yeah, because he just made so much of it up. Yeah,
1: he made. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they. Yeah, the other thing was that. Um... Uh, they promised not to use him on any of the advertising. And, of course, when they made it, um, uh, they went genie heavy with the advertising. And so Robin Williams fell out with Disney. Uh, and that's why he didn't do Return of Jafar. The right. Second one. And Dan Castellanata uh, did it. Homer Simpson did the yeah. voice yeah. in the sequel. And then I think they paid him off with uh, Picasso, uh, which lured him back to do the third one which was so he doesn't do the he does the first and the third one but he doesn't do the middle one because they prom they broke contract with him
3: why would uh, it's quite a weird stipulation to put in your contract i will do your movie just don't put arguably i'm, I'm also i'm going to be in your movie and i'm going to beef up my part so i'm the main guy right i know the movie's called aladdin but i'm going to talk so much that I'm going to make the part a bigger part than it already is, but don't put me on the poster. It's a weird time to get shy, isn't it? Don't, for, for don't old give with. the
1: adverts, don't use me in any of the McDonald's promotions, don't do anything. It's just like, what the fuck are you thinking?
3: Why, why would that be? The, I mean, you know. I do it. Exactly. Why, you know, like, it doesn't make any, any sense that he wouldn't want, to be, wouldn't want to be used. Of course, Will Smith, not at all shy. Yeah. The but first then, thing, the first image you saw was big, big blue Will Smith looking <laughs> ridiculous.
1: And that's why that film doesn't work. Because the original <laughs> film was made up of three hundred hours of Robin Williams on cocaine, pulling stuff out of his ass, and then, it, and then they script that, and then they go, "Go on, Will, you do it." And then he's just basically got to do this.
0: That's crazy.
1: You're coming with me. Um, so uh, <laughs> what? Uh, right. Okay. Just really quickly, Matt. Um, what is Caro Diario, Diario?
3: Oh, yeah, that's, that's by the way, that's my sort of... If people ask me what my favourite movie is, it's my sort of pretentious uh, choice ah, okay. to put down. It's a, it's, a, it's an Italian movie. But it's also, again, a film that I think is hilariously funny. It's filmed by a filmmaker called Nanny Moretti. Uh, and it's basically his his diary entries for uh, a year. Um, and it's, it's just him driving around on his moped. Um, it's... It's like it is pretentious because it's an Italian movie about a man driving around in a moped talking to himself, but um, it's also really really funny. Okay, and it's, yes, is that, so, all, is that all the time we have for that? That's all yeah. we got? Yes, yes we've okay.
1: got one minute to play better or worse now, so come on, okay, uh, yeah, here we go. One one minute.
3: To,
2: it's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion.
3: Okay, here we go.
2: With, Too slow, Nat. Uh, is Wes Anderson better than Wesley Snipes?
3: Um,
2: worse. He's worse. He's better. Gillian uh, Anderson, better or worse than Wes Anderson?
3: Uh, better.
2: Worse. Oh. Pamela Anderson, better or worse than Gillian Anderson?
3: Better. Worse.
2: Worse. Oh, you, Pamela he's... Stevenson, better or worse than Pamela Anderson? Um, better. Better. Oh, James Vanderbeek, better or worse than Pamela Stevenson? Worse. Worse. James Spader, better or worse than James Vanderbeek? Better. Better, James McAvoy better or worse than James Fader. Worse. Worse. Uh, Rupert Everett better or worse than James McAvoy?
3: Better. Better.
2: better. Rupert Murdoch better or worse than Rupert Everett?
3: Worse. Far worse.
2: Worse. Rupert Grint better or worse than Rupert Murdoch? Better. It's
1: close, but he's better. Better. What's that? Eight. An eight! You scored an eight? That's unbelievable. So you scored an eight, which means that you're not as good as Jim Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manfred, Joseph Daney uh, with ten, David Badil, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke with nine, but you are as good as Susie Dent, Charles Esther, Neddy Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Isaacs, Simon West, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt Okine Miranda Raisin, Griff Jones, Chris Stark, Stu Whiffen with eight, and you're better than James King, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, and Gary Delaney with six. <clears throat> Matthew Crosby, welcome to the clubhouse. Thank you very much for being here today. It was lovely and delightful to talk to you. Don't go away. We to need to talk to you after we finish recording, but for now, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me, and goodbye from and goodbye from me. Uh, uh, everyone, take care, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Goodbye.